Welcome to the Rocky Valley Podcast. This is Pastor Jason Moe. We're glad you stopped in to have a listen, and we hope that this blesses you in some way. James chapter 2. James chapter 2. We'll be starting in verse 14 tonight as we journey through James together. This evening we come to come to this second chapter. We start to talk about a new idea about the things that we do and how they relate to our faith. Uh, this section, the next 14 verses in fact, uh, can be somewhat controversial if we aren't careful. So we're going to take the next two weeks and look into what James is saying to us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, to this point, James has been writing, and he, he's writing to the dispersed Christians. He's writing to people who claim to know Jesus, those who would identify as Christians. And he's really been honing in on the subject of, of how is your faith playing out in your life? How is your faith playing out in your life? And so how do you react to <clears throat> trials? How do you respond when you hear the Word of God? How do you respond when you hear from the Word of God that the way you've been living is not the way you're supposed to be living? Do you respond in anger? Do you respond in humility? How do you respond when you hear the Word of God? How do you treat others as a result of knowing Christ? Do you show favoritism to those who you feel like can advance you in some way? Or do you treat everyone with the love of Christ? Do you treat everyone the way that you're supposed to treat people? And James relates that and shows us that how we treat others is a direct reflection of our relationship with Jesus Christ. That the way our relationship is with Jesus will show in the way that we treat others. And over the next 14 verses, we will be looking first at dead faith. And then next week, we'll be looking at living faith and how we work and what we do as a result of our faith. Psychologist Alfred Adler once said that in terms of people, you can trust only what the movement is. Or you can trust only in what they do and never in what they say alone. This psychologist got famous for that statement, but really he had determined something that the Word of God is telling us right here in the book of James, that you can trust what a person does way more than you can trust just what a person says about themselves and about their faith. To kind of paraphrase what James is going to be talking about tonight, he is saying essentially that saving faith doesn't cause a person to do anything it is dead faith. In other words, so if the faith that you claim doesn't cause something different in your life to happen, then you don't have that saving faith of Jesus Christ. You've got merely a, a faith that you talk about. He says in verse 17, he says it again in verse 20, and he'll say it again at the end of the chapter. He talks about it and calls it literally a dead faith that doesn't produce a work of righteousness in your life. And the thing about it is, is that people who have this dead faith will try their best to point to the things they say and the things that they want you to think about them instead of looking to how the fruit in their life shows through. Faith will always be seen in action, and dead faith will never be seen. So let us stand this evening as we honor the reading of the holy, infallible, and errant words of our holy God from James chapter 2 and verses 14 through 20. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does that profit? 
Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well, but even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Let's pray. Father God, as we dive into this text this evening, Lord God, illuminate the truths of your word to us. Change us even this very evening, Lord God. Show us the truths and command our lives, Lord Jesus. God, we will give you the praise and the honor that you are due. And all of God's people said, and you may be seated. So dead faith is no faith. And I want to be clear uh, as we go through this, we're going to be talking about dead faith. And that is kind of an empty belief. We see in verse 14 that a dead faith or a belief in the things of God, but not having been reborn or transformed by God. It's why the Lord says, even the demons acknowledge that Jesus is Jesus. Even the demons will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. And so it's not good enough just to say, well, I believe in Jesus. It's not even good enough to just acknowledge that Jesus may be a Messiah. It's not good enough to acknowledge that there is a God. It's not good enough to merely acknowledge those things intellectually. It's, it's not sufficient. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3 that it's only sufficient for salvation that you be reborn. You must be transformed by the relationship and the renewal of the mind. You must have a relationship with Jesus Christ that transcends that intellectual knowledge that he is Jesus because like the Word of God says, even the demons, even the demons know that Jesus is Jesus. And so to be a believer, you have to have developed a relationship with Jesus. You have to have cried out for him to save you. You have to have made him Lord of your life. Not just some intellectual being that you know exists, but he has to be the Lord of your life. You have to have placed yourself under his lordship and be one of his children. Verse 14 tells us that there's an interesting thing about the confession of a dead faith. The confession of a faith that isn't a saving faith, and it is that it is an empty Confession. He says right here, what good is it if a person claims to have faith in Jesus or even faith in that Jesus was resurrected, but it doesn't change his life. It doesn't change anything about what he's doing. Nothing, nothing is different. What good does it do him to go around saying that he has faith if there's no righteous change in his life? And, and this is kind of an active Sentence. So he's saying literally he's talking about someone that would be going around who would be coming into your midst and he would be claiming his faith in Jesus. He would be claiming to be a great Christian. He would be claiming to have this tremendous faith in Jesus. But when you looked at his life, you did not see that anything was different on this side of faith than it was before faith. In other words, you would see that he lived exactly the same way as he did before he came to know Jesus. Nothing had changed. He had no fruit in his life. He had nothing that he was doing that would make you look and say, Ah, that man loves Jesus. Look at the way he loves others. Look at the way he does this. Look at the way he does that. And so he says, What good... Is that if there's no change in your life, if nothing's different after you claim to be saved than it was before you claim to be saved, then my friends, something did not happen in that relationship because it is impossible. Let me say that again. It is impossible to come into a relationship with Jesus Christ and leave the same as you were before you got there. 
It is not possible to truly encounter Jesus Christ and not be changed. There's no fruit. There's no evidence. It's just an empty confession. Just an empty confession. When true faith is placed in Jesus Christ, we receive a new nature. A transformation takes place. And when that happens, you cannot be the same. You remember the parable of the soils. The good soil will always produce fruit. The good soil will always produce fruit. And the fruits of righteousness will always be a transformed life. And so what are some of the works that we may see from someone who has had a a saving faith encounter? In chapter, we only need to really look back through chapter 1 and what we've already studied in James. We'll do it real quickly. Chapter 1, verse 12, we might see that that person would have an endurance, patiently enduring, triumphantly through his trials, standing faithfully on the promises of God in his trial. Verses 18 through 20, we see that they might hear properly from the word of God. Verse 21, that they would be working to put away their wickedness, working to put away their wickedness. Notice I didn't say that they would be sinless, I said they would be working to put away their wickedness. You would noticeably see that they are striving to be more Christ-like and put away the things that they were doing before they came into contact with Jesus Christ, before they had this relationship. We would see in verse 22 that they would hear the word and seek to be obedient to the word. Verse 27, we'd see that they would have a compassion for the needy. And so what makes these works righteous works? What makes these works Something special. These are things that a person would not do a part of the spirit of the living God. It's just not natural to do these things. It's just not natural to to have this encompassing life of obedience to Jesus Christ. It's not natural for a person to be compassionate to others and be submissive to the word of God. Sure, there there are people who, there are atheists who have no relationship with Jesus Christ who can be compassionate to others. But they won't be compassionate to others and they won't have an obedience to Christ in Scripture. They won't be looking to kill their own wickedness. They won't be looking to do these things. And so James is showing us that that the things that we do are going to be a result of our faith. And you'll be able to look at a person who has a real faith, who has a faith in Jesus Christ, and see that the things that they do are different than the things that they did before because they're transformed. With a saving faith will come a new nature, and with a new nature will come new actions. In other words, what we do, what we do is an indicator of whose we are. What we do is an indicator of whose we are. Now, this is where it can get a little little controversial if we're not careful. So I want to make sure that I'm very clear on something before we move on. Because some would look at this and say... Well, doesn't this preaching go against what Paul preached about grace? You're talking about here in James, you're talking about how your faith is played out in your works. You're starting to tie those works in with your faith. And then Paul said that it was all an act of grace and there was nothing you could do to earn your salvation. And so which one is it, preacher? Is it grace or is it works? Which one is it? Well, it's yes, basically. It's it's yes. I want to call attention to something. James and Paul. So we need to take the Bible in the context in which it's written first. And so in order to take the Bible in the context in which it's written, we need to explore, one, who was the intended audience that he was writing it to. Now, I know that we know 
that we are part of the intended audience of the Holy Writ of Scripture. But specifically, as Paul was penning his letters to those he was writing to, he was battling against an enemy. And he was basically, I put James and Paul back to back, battling an enemy out. Okay, and so they're kind of battling the same enemy. They're not face-to-face battling each other. They're back-to-back battling something different. And so as Paul's penning his letter, he's writing to a bunch of people who who had lived their entire life being told they had to do this and do this and do this and do this and do this in order to be holy with God. So they had to wash their hands, they had to obey the rituals, they had to follow the cleansing rituals, they had, to, they had to do this, they had to wear certain clothes on certain days, they were not allowed to eat this after a certain time, and so they had to follow all of these rules in order to be counted holy with God. And so they were used to truly a works-based system, not things that they did because of Jesus, but things that they did to try and attain salvation. And so as Paul is writing to this group of stiff-necked people, he's saying, listen, it is not the things you do, it is the grace of Jesus Christ that saves you. You cannot do these things and expect to be saved. You're only saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. James, on the other hand, he's writing to a bunch of people who had come under the mindset that somehow or another they could just claim Jesus and do nothing and have no change in their life, but because they claimed Jesus... They were saved. And so James is writing against a whole different group. It's not the same people that he's writing to. And so essentially what James is writing is that, hey, if you know Jesus, you're going to do something about it. You're not going to be able to stay the same. You're not going to be able to just go through life watching things happen around you and not tell somebody else about Jesus and not show somebody your faith in the things that you do. And so they're really, they're not battling against each other. They're really battling together against different non-truths, you might say. They're both standing against things that would inhibit people from coming to a true and saving faith. Paul, battling against a work-based salvation. James, battling against a dead faith type salvation. A claim to know Christ that was an empty confession. And so James is not writing that salvation comes by anything other than grace alone. Because that would be contradictory to Scripture. James still would say that salvation is by the grace of God alone. Salvation is by the grace of God alone. But what James is writing is that one of the things that is a result of that grace of Jesus in your life is that you will change your life to honor Christ. It's going to be evident in the things that you do. In other words, I don't work to attain salvation, I work because I've been saved. we got to make that clear, though, because I don't want anybody going out of here saying, oh, Brother Jason said i got to do these things. i got to go, I need to go to the soup kitchen this week to show that I'm saved. No, 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 no. What I'm saying is you ought to want to go to the soup kitchen because you've been saved. Maybe not the soup kitchen, maybe it's something else. Suddenly there's going to be a rash of people at the bridge worship Saturday going out to the soup kitchen. All right. In other words, it's, it's really this simple. We should be, as children of God, so overtaken by the fact that a good God loved us enough to save us when we didn't deserve it, that we ought to want to serve Him. It ought to be obvious in the things that we do that we are so overcome by the grace of God. 
I want to be more obedient. I want to be more Christ-like because Jesus saved me. Think about that. Think about this example. If you went in to the bank tomorrow to pay your house note, and when you got there, the teller said, we can't take your money. Somebody paid your debt in its fullness. Here's their name. Here's the name of the person that paid your debt in full, and they just came in, and when I asked them why they were paying your debt in full, they said, because I just love them. They didn't do anything for me. I just love them. Would you not seek that person out and seek to thank them and do something for them? And would you not tell everybody you came in contact with about how Brother Eric paid their house note off? Would you not tell how Brother Eric, you showed up at the bank and it turned out that Brother Eric had come into a lot of money and he had paid your house note off? Well, of course you'd tell everybody about it. So why in the, that's your house note. It lasts, what, 15 to 30 years, depending on how you financed your home. 15 to 30 years is all that debt lasts. Do you realize that when Jesus saved you, he paid a sin debt that you would have to suffer in hell for an eternity and you wouldn't be able to pay it off and Jesus paid it all and all to him you owe? Why in the world would we want to keep that quiet? We'd tell somebody that excused a 30-year debt of money, but we won't tell somebody about a Jesus that excused a lifetime debt from hell that I owed? Of course we want to tell somebody. So it's not that we work to try and earn favor with God. We, we should work because we have favor with God as a result of the blood of Jesus Christ. So look to verse 15 with me. First he says there's going to be an empty confession, but then he says there's going to be a fake compassion in a dead faith. You have to look for a fake compassion. And he's kind of moving into a specific example about the absence of deeds, about the absence of works. He says if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, let's just stop there for just a second. If they're naked or destitute of their daily food. Now this phrase... It's one of those phrases that, in my opinion, doesn't translate perfectly. And so the phrase there literally doesn't mean naked in the way that we think of, of naked. So we're not talking about somebody strolling into the church house literally in their birthday suit. Although that would be startling, to say the least. Don't anybody get any ideas for Wednesday night service? It doesn't exactly mean no clothes. It, it really more means not adequately clothed. That would be, in my opinion, a better way to translate that. Not having the clothes that they needed. If someone doesn't have the clothes that they need, the idea is that they would be cold. That's basically kind of the idea that James is trying to ring through. If someone were to come into your midst, a brother or sister, so it'd have to be somebody that claims to be a Christian, somebody that would be comfortable in your fold. Somebody comes in... And you can look at them and tell that, you know, maybe it's, they've got a, they've got a, a tank top and a, and a thin pair of pants and it's sub-zero temperatures outside. They come in, they're shivering. That's the idea. Somebody that comes in and they're, they're shivering. And you look at this person and it's, it's obvious that they haven't eaten in several days. You know what I'm saying? So they come in and they're, they're very ragged. They don't have 
the clothes that they need to survive the temperatures that they're enduring. They see their ribs. You can tell that they haven't eaten in several days. You know that they don't have the food in order to get by. They're literally starving and freezing. That's the idea that we're driving home here. A brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food. They don't have the things that they need. And you said to them, look what he says in in verse 16. If somebody comes in who is naked, starving, and cold, and you say to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled. Now that phrase, depart in peace, literally, go in peace, it would be like we say bye. It's the same idea. It's the same thing that some of you are going to say to me by the back door here in just a little while. Bye, Brother Jason. Have a nice week. Have a good day tomorrow. Enjoy your evening. Right? It's that same idea. Go in peace. So literally, somebody has come into your midst wearing a wife beater tank top, thin pants. It's sub-zero. They haven't eaten in three days. And all you can muster up is to go up to them. You probably don't even put your hand on their back. But you just go up to them and you say, hey, have a nice week. Be filled with food and stay warm. And you go away. Well, what did you do for that? Did you really show compassion to that person? Did you really show compassion? Because you didn't do anything. You just went up to them and said, hey, be warm and, uh, and fill your belly. Deuces, have a nice week. I'm out the back door. There are actually two ways that we could interpret this be warmed and filled, go in peace. One, because we don't don't really know exactly what the inflection James was looking for, but there's one way we could translate it where it would be almost sarcastic. Don't expect me to do anything. You should feed yourself. You should warm yourself. Go in peace. Take care of yourself. I took care of myself. You should take care of yourself later. That's one way that that he could intend it. There's also another way, a more passive voice, and and I think this is probably more the idea, but it's not a whole lot better. And it would be more the thought of, hey, go in peace. I sure hope somebody takes care of you. I hope somebody gives you a meal and a blanket for the evening. I hope you find a warm place to lay your head, and I hope you find some food to eat. But either way... Whatever the intention was in the phrasing, whether it was passive, I hope somebody else takes care of you, or whether it was more aggressive of, of hey, I'm not going to be the one to do it, good luck. Either way is not good, though. Neither way is a real compassion that you would show to someone. Neither is good for the body. And so James says, you don't give them the things which are needed. What does it profit In other words, what good is that? What what good is the kind of faith that would cause you to show that kind of compassion to someone? What good is that to anyone? What good is that to the hungry and the destitute? What good is that to the person who is needy for you to just say, good luck? What kind of compassion is that? If your faith causes you to show that kind of compassion, what good was that faith is basically what James is saying. What does it profit the body? What does it profit anyone for that to be your reaction to the things that are going on around you? Well, I hope somebody feeds you. Good luck. By the way, I know it's nice and warm in here, but uh, 
I got to lock the door. Could you, could you slide on out? I can't let you stay here. Our equipment's too expensive. Could you head out the front door? You, you really, you can't really stay on the porch either. Somebody might get the wrong idea. But hey, we got a field in the back. You can lay out there until the preacher lets his dog out this evening, and then you're going to wish you weren't there. Good luck. What good is that faith? That is a fake compassion. It's not a real compassion. You know what that compassion is good for? That compassion is good to make you feel better about yourself and not affect anybody around you. It's good enough for you to be able to go home and say, hmm, I told that fellow I hope he gets better, but I didn't do anything for him. I didn't do anything to change his life or the people around me. If the faith you possess does not move you to take compassion on the hungry and the cold, then it isn't the saving faith of Jesus Christ. It's not the faith of Jesus. Now, I want to be clear because, I, again, you've got to be careful when you make these statements. I'm not saying that every time anybody says they need help, that we have to just take them at their word and just throw money and, and, and everything at them every time they come around. Because if we do that far too often and, and benevolently at this church, I praise God to be in a church that is so benevolent that usually when somebody comes needing something, we do everything within our power to help them. Pay light bills, whatever we can do. And I praise God for that. We generally don't over-interview somebody. And you know what? As a result of that, I think anybody that's been involved in benevolence would say, you know what? We've probably given money to somebody who just simply wasn't doing better for themselves. But as a result of that, we've also genuinely helped some people who were doing the best they can and needed some help. We've genuinely shown the love of Christ to some people. So I'm not saying that, that if every person that comes through the door that claims they need something, if you turn one of them down or you can't help them or you don't have the, the feeling that you can truly help them in the love of Christ, that you're not saved. That's not what I mean by that. But I'm saying when somebody walks, this person that James is describing is obviously, obviously cold and hungry. They're obviously cold and hungry. And what are you moved to do for them? Because if you're not moved to do something for them, you need to check where you're at with Christ. You need to check where you're at. Verse 17 says it very well. He says, faith by itself, this faith that stays alone and doesn't impact others around you, faith by itself that does not have works is dead. It's a dead faith. If, if, if your faith causes you to go into your bubble and impact no one around you, then you need to check and see if you have a relationship with Jesus or if you just know who Jesus is. If you've truly been changed by coming into contact with Jesus or if you just have this idea that Jesus is a Messiah. So James begins to show us that dead faith has an empty confession. It has a fake compassion. And dead faith will also have a shallow conviction. Look at verse 18 with me. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Can I just say this too real quick? These, these verses are, are kind of difficult 
to reconstruct from the Greek language, honestly. John MacArthur says it best when he says that New Testament and Greek can be most difficult at times because there's not really any punctuation. It would be kind of like if you wrote a letter, so imagine this with me, imagine writing a letter, an entire page, and putting no punctuation in it at all, no periods, no question marks, no commas, no semicolons, no anything. Get to the end of the letter, write about 20 commas, 10 periods, four exclamation points, and a question mark, and putting at the end of the letter, put them where you want to. Imagine how the reader would try to figure that punctuation out, and that's how, that's how the Greek text can be sometimes. So we can't always know exactly uh, as we try to reconstruct it, what's going on. But verse 18 seems to be a, a hypothetical conversation that James is talking about. And so it seems to me that he's saying, listen, it's inevitable as I pen this letter to you that somebody is going to be an antagonist. Somebody's going to look at this and they're going to try to question what I'm saying. They're going to try to be the one to kind of disagree with what I'm saying. They're going to be the one to try and, and twist it around. And so he says to that person, he says, somebody's, somebody's going to come up and say, you have faith and I have works. In other words, they're going to say, hey, we, we just see it different. We just got it different. I got my faith. You say you got your works. But hey, I'm just as saved as you are. I got just as much faith as you do, even if I don't do anything to help people, even if I haven't changed my life at all, even if I still live in the same sin that I lived in before I came to know Jesus. Hey, I say I'm a Christian. I'm just as Christian as you are. Don't judge me. Right? Don't you judge me. And James says to that person, you show me your faith without your works. Think about that. Think about James's challenge. Hey, all right. Show me your faith. Well, how? How? Think about that. Somebody, somebody help me out. How, how would someone show their faith without doing something? How do you show your faith without doing any works? How do you show that you have a real relationship with Jesus without being obedient to Jesus? How do you show that you have a true saving faith without it affecting your life and something changing? How do you show your faith and do nothing? James says you can't. Show me your faith without your works. Go on, big boy. Kind of a challenge type statement. Then what does James say? Now I'll show you my faith by the things that have happened to me in my life. Think about that. You can't show me your faith without works, but I can show you what Jesus has done for me. I can show you how my life is different as a result of coming to know Christ. I can show you the things that I do now that I didn't do before because I know Jesus. I can show you the compassion in my heart that I have now that I didn't have before, and it's only explained by the grace of Jesus. I can show you how I used to live like this, but now I live a redeemed life. It's not anything I did. It's because of Jesus. It's by His grace and by His mercy. James seems to be singing that old hymn, What a Wonderful Change in My Life Has Been Brought since Jesus came into my heart. I'm happy, so happy, 
as onward I go, since Jesus came into my heart. That's why when you meet someone and they say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian. Yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. And the conversation begins and, and all they talk about in their testimony is, is what happened 28 years ago at Obebenezer Ebenezer number 7. Oh, yeah, 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 no, no. oh, yeah, 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 oh, yeah, well, you're a preacher, yeah, 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 oh, yeah, I'm, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian, yeah, yeah, yeah. Back in old, old Ebenezer number 12, over on Highway 79, my daddy was a deacon. Went to church there until I was 12, 13 years old. Got baptized when I was 15, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I said, really? What? You're 57, what's, what's going on for the last 40 years? Well, I murdered three people, I raped a woman, I've been in jail, but now I'm out. And that's why you've run into me in this setting, you've run into me. I'm not saying the man wasn't saved at 15. That's not what I mean when I say that. What I'm saying is your conversation about Jesus with someone should be an active conversation. When someone asks you, what about Jesus? If you're a child of God, you should be able to say, oh, yeah, he walks with me, and he talks with me. He tells me I'm his own. Why, just yesterday, just this morning, when I was talking to God, you know, just the other day, we didn't know how everything was going to work out, but we prayed, and God seemed to work it out in our lives. It should be an active conversation. Your story about Jesus should never stop 30 years ago in a Bible school. That's a good place to start. But your story about Jesus, if you're a child of God, should be continuous and should be evolving daily in how you're growing closer to him. Why? Because to know him is to want to be like him. And we're not like him right off the bat. We're not sanctified until we're called home. So as a Christian, we should continually be drawing closer to God. He kind of closes out the statement. He said, hey, believe in, believers one God. That's good. But even the demons believe that. They even tremble. But if you don't have a relationship that causes you to do some things different than you did before you met Jesus, you need to check your faith closely and make sure that it is a saving faith. So how do we respond to that right here in 2017 at Rocky Valley Baptist Church? I think we ask ourselves the same question. Ask ourselves the same question. What is my faith doing in my life? And if... if my relationship with Jesus doesn't cause me to live differently than I did before I met Jesus. Why? I will never, ever, ever be one of those preachers that tries to scare people into a fifth salvation. That's not... I want you to have joy in your salvation, not sadness. But I do want you to check where you're at and ask yourself some serious questions because the Word of God tells us to do so. If I'm not living for Jesus... Why?
Is it because I've never met him? Or is it because I've drifted? Either way, I need to draw into Jesus this very moment that I might live for him. Let us pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you so much. We thank you for your word and for your mercy and your truth, Lord. God, we thank you that it is a living and breathing word that causes us to be made new daily. That your spirit dwells within us as children of God and causes us to be different, different than we were, different than we are, drawing near to you. God, it'd be my prayer if someone here says, my relationship hasn't changed my life, that you would give them the wisdom and the conviction to examine why. Why is my relationship with God not causing my life to be different than it was before? God, we love you, we praise you, and it's in your sweet name that we pray together. Amen. Thanks again for joining in. We sincerely hope that this has blessed you in some way. If you have any further questions, feel free to give us a call or check us out on the web at www.rockyvalleybaptist.org. Thank you and have a blessed day.